Do you realize you're fighting for your life? Freedom can be a captor. Truth liberates. Normalcy should be held up to scrutiny. When everything is on the line, learn how to stop living a lie. Good morning. Hello, everyone. Good to see everybody. Let's say hello to everybody at all the campuses and everybody online. Just say hi. We get to do this in lots of locations at once. It's great to, great to do that, isn't it? Say a lot of you have, uh, you know, asked about uh, my, my dad. I just wanted to say the services were um, uh, last week back in Minnesota, and they were, you know, hard but beautiful, you know, if you've ever been to a service like that. I just really honored God and honored my dad, and I and, uh, just want to thank you again for the tremendous outpouring of support and love and encouragement and prayers through this. Uh, every one of our elder team made the effort to, to uh, get on a plane and come out and stand with me, some other staff and friends. Thank you for that, but all of you, just thank you for walking with me through that whole period. And um, uh, mom is uh, okay. You know, everyone asks about her. She's 95, lives alone. They were together 72 years, so it's hard, not going to lie. Yeah, not going to lie about being hard, but she, she's living in that promise that, you know, we're never truly alone alone and clinging to the Lord through all of this. So thank you for your continued thoughtfulness for her. And I just thought maybe, you know, even on Father's Day, you know, um, some of the messages that I've shared on social and Ben's notes and other places, um, my hope was that it would maybe help you not just marvel about a good guy that you maybe didn't know that well, but that you, we would all think about, you know, what kind of, um, maybe if you're a dad, what kind of father am I and who will I become? What kind of mom am I? What kind of grandparent? What kind of friend? What kind of disciple Will I be when my time comes? Because that time is coming for all of us. That was my hope, is that it would encourage you and maybe continue to have that lingering impact, okay? All right, let's jump in, all right? Because we're in a series that ends today, and uh, we've been calling it How to Stop Living a Lie, and we have been um, really influenced and encouraged by some ideas by an author, John Mark Comer, in his book, but we're really leaning into the one, (laughs) who said in John 14, 6, I am the way. There's a certain way, and, I, and, and it's me. Follow me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And a decision to follow him immediately places you in a conflict. It just does. It, it, there's a struggle, a fight, a war, if you will, between truth and lies. And that's at the heart of everything we're saying. We've talked about how there are three enemies of our soul that we've identified really from ancient times. They've been labeled in different ways, but one of the, one of the ways that's attractive to me is the way that it's talked about as the devil, the flesh, and the world. The devil, the flesh, and the world, kind of a counter-trinity, if you will, which is hell-bent on the ruin of your, your happiness, your eternity, your family, your peace, our society. It, it's, it's, it's an actual thing, and the strategy is spelled out kind of here. The strategy of this sort of unholy trinity, this anti-God 
force that's very real in the world starts with um, a deceptive idea, a lie that gets planted in our heads or hearts or, or whatever, and, and we begin to believe that until it takes what was a God-given good desire and disorders it, twists it, and turns it so we want it for ourselves in some way. That's called the flesh. And when that gets normalized and sort of like, oh, that's good now, that's the way things should be, that's called the world. And so we're digging into that today, but let me just tell you, if this is stressful for you, all of this, just go with the flow, honestly. Just go with whatever you want to do. I mean, do whatever people are doing around you. Just um, fit in, do whatever it takes to fit in, really. um, Just if everyone's doing it, just you do it. You'll be happier that way. Does anybody believe me? This, this is the kind of thinking and the language that even if I say it, there's a part of you that goes, yeah, yeah. And there's a part of us that realize instinctively, I think that could be bad for me. And that's really the heart of the world. That's the lie that the enemy wants us to believe. So when we go to Scripture and we think about um, the world, we can maybe go. You know, I was able to be with a group of friends in Israel earlier this year. And, um, you know, there, there was a... Uh, uh, a day when we went to the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, that place just right there in Jerusalem where Jesus then on the night that he um, would, would eventually uh, uh, be arrested and led to his death, what is the last thing he does? Well, he prays. He talks, he pours out his heart to the Father. And we actually can lean in and look over his shoulder at his prayer diary in the book of John. And so we'll do that in chapter 17 right now. Let's put it on the screen and you follow along. This is what Jesus is praying. He says, Father... Okay, I have given them your word. I, 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 Jesus is the word, right? He's the word of God in the flesh. And he says, I came, I did it, I, I gave them the truth, I, I told them who you were, all of it. But, he says, the godless world, see there, was opposed to them because of me giving them me. <laughs> because they didn't join the world's ways, just as I didn't join the world's ways. So, Father, he says, I'm not asking that you would take them out of the world. No, that would, that's, that would, that'd be, that's not why we came at all. But I'm just asking, Father, that you would guard them from the evil one. This is Jesus' prayer for you. And his intention is in the next two lines. He says, they are no more to be defined by the world than I am. And then he says, finally, just so in fact, Lord, make them holy. It means separate, set apart, consecrated, different. How? Well, with the truth. Your word is that consecrating truth that can make us holy. In the same way that you gave me a mission then in the world, once we have the word, the word of truth in us, then we're fit to be in the world. And I, he, says, he closes by saying, I'm sending them with a mission in the world. Father, will you help us sort this out and understand? I, mean, I don't know where everybody is today on, on everything, but I know that you've called each one of us to be in this world but yet not of the world. Will you help us understand how to do that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is Jesus praying here? What's he, what's he talking about? What, well, let's talk about the word world, first of all. Okay, so it's a, in the Greek text, it's the word cosmos. Everybody say cosmos. Now, we get an English word from that word. Does anybody have any idea what English word we might get from that word? 
Yeah, cosmos, exactly, right. So yeah, it, it, so, yeah I'm just messing with you. So, so the, the word cosmos in, Greek, in the Greek language actually has like at least three different meanings, depending on the context, you can figure it out. And uh, like we have a lot of words like that in English as well. But like, so the first meaning would be just like the, the, the earth, the, this blue ball we live on, this terrestrial thing. God created the world in that sense. That's one thing that cosmos can mean. Another thing it can mean is the people. Like all of humanity, John 3.16, we quote a lot. God so loved the world. Well, he's not talking about the, the, the earthly ball at that point. He's talking about the people. But the way that we're using it now when we talk about the devil, the flesh, and the world, and the way it's used very often, actually most often in the New Testament, has a different, more dark and sinister meaning. And it, it, it is something you could, you could define this way. One lexicon defines it this way. That system of, system, like of practices and standards that kind of stem from a society without God. Like when we try to say, okay, let's figure out how to do everything without God in the picture, that essentially is the world. And therefore it's based on, you can use all these isms, secularism, humanism, hedonism. What's secularism? It's, it's, it's when we say, uh, we don't need God to do anything. And what's humanism? It's when we say the source of authority is myself. I, I don't need any sort of, so what I decide, what I want, what I think is now truth and good. And hedonism is basically the pursuit of pleasure. So if I feel it and want it, it's automatically good and, and you shouldn't ever stop it. So those things are the things that sort of are driving behind uh, the world, what the Bible calls the flesh and, and the devil as well. Jesus says in John 15, 19, he says, remember, you do not belong to the world. So there's going to be this thing, and it's big, and it's influential, and it's moving and, and drawing, but remember, I've chosen you out of the world. You know, in Greek, um, the word that we use, church, uh, in Greek, in the Bible, it's the word ekklesia, which when you look at what the word means, ek, ek means to pull out. It means literally the called out ones. So we're in the world, definitely. That's where he sent us. That's where we are. And yet there's something that's meant for us to be different, that we're called out in some unique and special way, not taking fully part of the the value system and, and the habits and the assumptions and the philosophies, ideologies of the day. Because we remember, as, as a few scriptures to share with you, we remember things like Philippians 3, which reminds us that our true citizenship is not even here. Like we're residents here, but we're kind of aliens. Our real citizenship is where? It's in, it's in the kingdom that God's coming. We're just kind of passing through. This is not our real home. When you have that mindset, you realize you can, you can navigate in the world but not be totally of it. We're, we're children of God, as 1 John 5 says. Not under the, we're not children of the devil, no. Romans 8 says we're not in the realm of the flesh. We live in the realm of the spirit. So, we're, so we're, we're the called out ones. So that world is that term using to describe like an entire group of people who kind of get under the spell of, of the devil's lie that then becomes a kind of feeder for a, dis, a, a, dis, a disordered desire which then gets normalized until everyone says, oh, of course, that's good. That's the way things are. And that becomes this sort of assumed um, just... Oh, status quo, which reminds me of that old cartoon of uh, the fish in the tank. You ever seen that cartoon? 
it's, too it's a fish in a tank, and the one fish swims up and, and, and says to the other, hey, how, boys, how, how's the water? And the other fish are like, water? What the heck is water? You're so, sometimes, thank you. Thank you. The, the, there, there, is, there is such a thing as being so immersed in something that you're unaware of it. That's the world. You, you get so swallowed up in it that you're not aware you're swimming in it. That whole set of assumptions becomes so integrated into the mainstream that it's like, oh, of course. I mean, just a quick look at our own American history has some blemishes of it. When you look at chattel slavery, it's like today we would look at it and go, how abhorrent and horrible, and yet it was codified in the laws and the economy, and everybody thought it was just the way things are. And so where does it all stem from? Well, it stems ultimately, and this is what John Mark Comer has pointed out for us, it stems ultimately against rebellion against God and, against, and, and by a redefinition of good and evil. Those two things, rebellion against God and redefinition of good and evil. So you go back to the Garden of Eden. Remember at the Garden of Eden, you got everything great at the beginning, but then what happens? The enemy comes and he begins to whisper in the ear, of the woman and cast doubt on the goodness of God. Did he really say that? And is he really looking out for your best interest? Is that really true? And begins to plant these lies. And the moment she begins, the moment you begin to doubt that God has really got your best interest or that God knows what's best, that you, tr you don't trust his goodness, all bets are off. And that's exactly the root behind every single one of our struggles in life is we no longer really trust God and what his word says. And so we begin to do two things. We begin to distance ourselves from God. That's what the people in the garden did. They began to run and hide and all that. And we do the same thing. It's us saying, I don't really need you, God. Thank you for bailing me out once in a while when I get in a bind, but really I don't need you to live. That's, that's a secular mindset. And then to define good and evil for ourselves rather than trust that God is really good. And what we find is, in a world like that, all that we have left as authority is no longer God, but ourselves, our heart, our desires, what anybody says. And so now we just, everything's relative. And so in that world, you distance yourself from God and redefine good and evil. What evil is called good, and good is called evil. Black is called white, white is called black. And what was once universally condemned now is celebrated. And what was once universally celebrated as a virtue, a good thing, is now like condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate are themselves condemned. And that's the world we live in. I remember someone handing me a book years ago. Maybe some of you have heard of it. 1973, Carl Mettinger, a Christian psychiatrist, was a prophet back in 1973 because he predicted, no one believed him at the time, but he predicted there would come a day... The, the title of the book was Whatever Became of Sin. He just said, we're going to not use that word anymore. We're going to label everything a sickness or it's because it's of biology or, you know, even people who do crimes are going to be considered a victim. We're going to flip everything around. To mark my word, he said, uh, you know, everyone's got a dysfunction or a syndrome and, and uh, you know, it's just, we're not, whatever it is, we're not going to have human responsibility for anything. We're not going to call it sin anymore. It's now called by any number of names and normalized 
And that's what happens when you lose your bearings and you say, I'm, I'm going to redefine good and evil and I'm going to distance myself from God. You know, in the old days, sailors would sail about and they would get their bearings by looking at the stars. And that's how they knew where north was and east and west and so forth and how you get to your destination. Um, I had a, a funny thing happen to me in high school. I was with a friend late at night. Uh, well, it wasn't late when we got there, but we went to this park back in Minnesota, Oxbow Park. And uh, we were hiking around and we got across some meadows and down some trails and we were quite a ways away when it got very dark and all of a sudden a cloud system rolled in and covered every star and the moon completely. You could not see a thing. Like it was so dark, probably 1130 at night, couldn't see your hand in front of your face, kind of dark. Uh, so we're like, oh boy, this is going to be an adventure finding our way back to the parking lot to get back to the car. And uh, so we're walking around in this thing. And then I saw what I thought was the North Star, which of course gave us our bearings, thankfully. So I said, wait a second, if that's north, okay, then we came in on the east. So, so we figured out which way, and there was a trail. So you could barely feel it, you know, under your feet, and you'd fall off the trail sometimes. But we eventually, we walked like 45 minutes and realized we, we weren't there yet. And then we found this wayfaring sign like this, one of those wooden signs. Unfortunately, it was engraved in there. So with, even though we couldn't read it at all, it's a pre-cell phone era, kids. You didn't have, you didn't have any light on your phone. And, and we traced out the letters to discover that we were going in exactly the opposite and wrong direction. <laughs> because later we learned that that light was actually a light on a radio tower or something in the completely different direction. And you know what's funny is we eventually got turned around and we did make it home, okay? But you know, it's interesting. You know, we sincerely believed we were on the right track. But, you know, at the end of the day, it really didn't matter how much we believed it or how sincere we were, did it? Because there is such a thing as a right and a wrong direction in life. And if you change your North Star, you change your destination. Simple. And that's the height of the world, is to, is to cloud over everything so we can no longer see the light, the one who said, I'm the light of the world, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We can't, we, if you don't see that and order your life around that, and when everyone else is like, oh no, I saw it, it's this way, that's called the pull, the lure of the world. It's precisely what's happening in a world like ours where we just no longer trust that God is good or has our best interest in mind or knows what he's talking about. Mm, things have really, really changed radically in society. I mean, there was a day when we would all acknowledge that lust could be dangerous because it can lead you to do things that you later regret and you feel worse about yourself and the person you objectified maybe with porn or acting out, uh, maybe because it was a selfish pursuit. or So it would be something that would be universally acknowledged, should be curbed and very cautious about, but now it's celebrated. In fact, we just call it love. Marriage you know, at one point would have been considered a, a covenant of lifelong faithfulness, is really more often thought of as a kind of contract now, just for personal satisfaction. In the moment, you know, you don't make me happy. Well, divorce once would have, would have been considered a heartbreaking, tragic outcome when two people were unable to 
hold their vows because of just differences and difficulties. But now it's sort of recast as an act of bravery and courage and authenticity. I I hope you know I'm, I'm not sort of coming at anybody. I'm just helping us see what's happened and what's changed. We live in a world now where if you actually think murder is what you want to do, I really don't have any basis to tell you that it's bad. I mean, I I could point to a law still because we happen to have one of those. At least we're not allowed to kill everybody. We're we're able to, to create the greatest infanticide in human history and call it reproductive justice because the destruction of human life, you know, doesn't apply to certain people. And again, I'm, not, I'm just trying to help us see how serious this is. There's a drawing power to it. So, when you think about all this, there are a few different reactions that Christian people tend to have toward the world when we think about all of its power and its influence and so forth. Let me, let me mention a couple of them, and you maybe find yourself here. I mean, one of the reactions that some people have when it comes to the world is they it's, it's the word flight, because <laughs> we get afraid. It's like, oh, it's scary. It's this big, dark, bad, evil world, and so what do we do? We fly away. We, we run to Christian enclaves where we can safely kind of bastion ourselves in some kind of little cave and just live only with Christian things around us because the world is such a scary, dark place. Another reaction that some Christians have is not flight motivated by fear, but it's more like fight with our fists. We get so angry about another thing that's been taken or changed or done, and I just want to come out swinging and so we come out with our fists and unsurprisingly that others who feel attacked raise their fists as well and we have a massive culture war going on to prove it. A third response that some have is, is neither flight nor fight but maybe just to fit in like it's so pervasive and I don't want to rock the boat and it just seems like I don't want anyone to think I'm weird so we just do everything we can to sort of follow the pattern and the lure of the world adopt its practices adapt to its values assimilate completely any way you can and actually a lot of data today shows that Christians when it comes to lots of ethical and moral behavior really aren't much different than the world itself and yet when you look at Jesus You don't see any of these things. He wasn't running away from the world in fear. He wasn't fighting it with his fist. He wasn't like, oh my gosh, how can we fit in and have everyone think I'm cool? He just didn't, he had had this option where where he just said, you know what, I'm just going to be faithful to who I am, why I'm here. I'm going to faith. He was friends with people in the world. Like he loved sinners, the worst of them, but yet he was never influenced by the world. It's an amazing mixture that he had. But, but he didn't avoid or, or fly from the world. John 1.14 says, the word of God became human and lived among us. He came and moved into the neighborhood, not to fight us, but to be here and love us. And then to be faithful to his father and his calling in the middle of that, in but not what? Of the world. So that's Jesus. So friends, we are called to be, say it with me, in but not of the world. So do a gut check and think about yourself. What's your go-to reaction to the world and its godless ways? Are you one of those who's like, I just want to get away from it all and just kind of, I just want to only be around Christian safe things and not interact with the world at all because things are getting so bad? Or are you more one of the angry types? You, you call it um, some kind of, you, you justify your anger in your fists because you think it's noble and good You always quote that verse about Jesus turning the tables over, but really, you're just ticking everybody off. You're coming out with your fists. 
Or are you one of those that's actually more just trying to fit in? Like, what the heck is water? Each one of them has such a deep danger for our own lives and for the witness of Jesus. When we run away from the world, we're like salt that never gets out of the shaker. Jesus said, be the salt of the earth. Get into the meat. We're the light of the world. But he says, don't put it under a basket. How can you be light of the world if you're like that? And if you fight, we forget that we're not here to fight the world, but to win it with the winsomeness and the love and the grace of Christ. And if we believe the greatest danger, you know, is that someone would think we're odd, then we're just going to try to fit in so much that we've got nothing left distinctive to offer to the very world because we've been so swept along when we would eventually just have to admit that the world is too much with us and in us. So, what do we do? Well, let me share a few things that the Bible suggests for us. The, 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 maybe one of the most powerful verses might be the book of Romans. So if you looked at the book of Romans, you can go to chapter 12. Because the first 11 chapters is the beautiful story of what God has done by all the grace he's poured out to say, man, I know you guys are screwed up, but I've sent Jesus to save you. Like, to help you. So you don't have to live that way. To give us the North Star and to... All, all of that, that's what the first 11 chapters are. And then in chapter 12, he says, therefore, in, I urge you now. You've just heard me tell about all the grace of God. In, in, in view of God's mercy, all this good stuff, here's what you should do in response. You should offer everything, your whole body, as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, and pleasing to God. That's how you worship God, is you just say, God, here I am, I'm yours. And then he goes on in verse 2 is where I want to focus. The next verse says this, do not therefore conform to the pattern of the world, but instead you've got, remember you gave yourself to God, so you've got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, like you can't let your mind like, just start rotting with the way of the world. You've got to be smarter than that. That's how you're going to be able to test and prove what God's will is. Or the message version in, of, of Romans 12 too, says it this way, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you just fit in without even thinking about it. Like you just swim in the water and you're so good at it that you never really, you're, you forget, hey, wait a second, I'm in but not of. Or the Phillips version has it very famously stated, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Isn't that great? That kind of really says it clearly, doesn't it? So, so, so my friend, listen, where, where are you being swept along, being squeezed into the mold these days? Because all of us have to answer that question like, Lord, I, I feel like I am being conformed rather than transformed in these ways. I'm becoming so well-adjusted that I'm actually at home in the ways of the world, which means it's just robbing me. It's, it's stealing from my inner being who I can be in Christ. Friend, if, if you have ever felt a little out of place trying to follow Jesus or become a Christian, or live as one. That's a good thing. And if you've never felt a little out of place, or a little weird, or awkward, by standing with Jesus and following after Jesus, then you're doing it wrong. Period. It's that simple. Jesus says, I mean, I'm not saying we have to be, you know, you follow Jesus, there's going to be some opposition. We live in a world that's moving away from Jesus, not toward him. And so at some point, every one of us has to make a choice, like, are we going to be okay following Jesus, even if someone thinks you're weird? 
you know, there's a tremendous power in group movement. Uh, herd mentality is kind of hardwired into the human being. They call it now social contagion theory, but we've known it all along. Like, you're at a party and somebody yawns, and what do you do? Yawn, you have no idea why. Some of you, thank you, you just yawned. Someone, someone, you just see someone laughing. They just start laughing. And you don't, even, you don't even hear the joke, but you just start walking over there and start laughing like, what's going on? You don't even know why. You're just smiling because someone else is smiling. And this is true in all of our lives. You live with people who smoke and eat junk food, you're probably going to be more likely to smoke and eat junk food. You're around people who, are, who, who drink a lot and get drunk. It's very different than people who drink moderately, and it affects your behavior very likely. If you are around people that are civil and kind and reasonable and, uh, and, 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 and argue with thoughtfully, that's a big influence on you as opposed to people who... who um, who are nasty and mean and divisive and cantankerous because behavior and values spread like chicken pox or name some other contagious disease, if you like. And, you know, it, it, it's amazing. Buffalo all walk on the same side of the field and teenagers all buy the same sneakers for this very phenomenon. And it's driven by that drive of, I want it and everybody's doing it. And you put those two together, and it's very, very powerful. I want it, and the world, and everybody's doing it. So what do we do? Let me give you a couple things. One, we've got to recognize and resist. It's why, it's why the Bible mentions it over and over, so at least we won't be like the one fish who's like, what the heck is water? We'll be like, oh yeah, ah, I know about the water. We recognize that there is such a thing as the world, and it's real, and then we we guard against it. We say, I'm going to be in it, but I'm not going to be of it. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Let me just, I don't, I don't know if I have the right list, but I, I'm just going to give you a couple suggestions. Really, Jesus would just say, follow me. Walk with me. Let my ways become your ways. That's how he did it perfectly. He was totally in the world, and yet he was not of it. Let me give a couple things that might be practical that could help us in that way. Number one, I think if a Christian today is going to say, i got to be in the world but not of it, I think you've got to learn, we've all got to learn to filter what we, what we watch and what we read and what we listen to, whatever we take in. We've got to learn to filter, like you've got to filter in your drain at home so all the stuff you don't want going down the drain doesn't go down the drain. You filter it out. You put a filter in your furnace so it stays pure and clean and can run well. And our minds are the same way. Our hearts are the same Say, As you are in your heart, so are you. So if you're constantly just like unfiltered, the stuff that comes in is going to be not helpful for you. If you, don't un, if you just uncritically absorb every message that comes to you on your phone and on your Netflix and through the TV and over the radio dial and every reel on TikTok that just wants to sell you something or have you think about something or doubts God or has a world without God, don't be surprised if your own attempt to be in but not of is weakened. We've got to learn to filter. What, what can you do to be more intentional and smart about filtering if you're serious about following Jesus? Number two, we've got to be wise about who you spend time with. It's just that simple. Jesus spent Lots of time with really sinful people who were very much in the world, and yet he was never influenced by them. He was light in their darkness. The Bible warns that bad company will sort of 
influence you. So I know a lot of people who say, well, I'm going to be like Jesus, I'm going to hang around all these people, but they, they end up getting dragged down themselves. So be wise about it is all I would say. I think we've got to be smart about who are my influences. And especially if you have family or friends that are workmates that are constantly dragging you down, you've got to be more intentional about, wow, I've got to balance that with people in the church that can help lift me up and encourage me and remind me I'm not crazy for trying to follow Jesus because some days, some days it's really hard. Third, I think we've got to pay attention to where we turn for answers. We're invited to have God's word so firmly planted in our hearts that it's our, it's our north star. We're not fooled by false lights. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, meaning understand who Jesus is and the truth of God's word that you, you don't doubt that he's actually good and has your best interest in mind and you're willing to not, not just trust him but obey him. And, and that's where you go for your answers. And if you, instead you go for answers, whatever your university professor said or whatever Google says or whatever three hours of TikTok says or whatever, you know, if that's your source, don't be surprised if you find it a struggle that you're losing to walk with Jesus. And finally, I would say, Find ways to be a nonconformist when it comes to the world. How could you be a nonconformist? You know, like, like how could you f- decide to do some, like, maybe just very personal or private little acts of rebellion against it, like just micro-protests that you hold every day that say, I'm not going to do that. I know everybody's doing that. I, I'm, I'm just going to exercise my faith muscle by not doing that. And let me ask it this way, just to be simple. What makes you different? If, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, there should be something. Wouldn't you agree that there's got to be something about us that would look more like Jesus than the world around us? And let me just say, say this. We're not talking here about us making a long list of legalistic rules. Some of us escaped churches that were famous for just making up a bunch of rules and said, if you did this and don't do that, wear that and don't do that, then it makes you a good godly person. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not the way it works at all. We're not talking about that, making a list that we pat ourselves on the back how holy we are because we keep a bunch of lists and rules like a bunch of Pharisees. And then we impose it on everybody else and look down on them if they don't keep my list. No. But at the same time, don't you think we've come pretty far and that maybe we do need some discernible difference in the way we act, feel, spend our money, behave. If we're going to be a light that shines out of darkness, maybe there's some nonconformist ways that you could just put a stake in the ground and say, you know, I know, I know one guy. This may sound crazy to you, but it meant something to him. He's like a, fo- a devoted follower of Jesus, but he's a big techie guy. And every new thing that came out, he had to have it. So, you know, he's the guy that knew when the iPhone was going to come out, like, you know, a year ahead of time and was waiting with his date on the calendar circle to stand in line or whatever. And he started realizing just, you know, wait a second, you know what? It's like, he just felt like it was a way that he could have a micro silent protest. And so he had a self-imposed rule. If, if a new gadget that he really, really wanted came out, he just said, I'm going to wait a year. He just said, I'm not, I'm not going to get sucked along. And you know what? He's actually still okay today. He's okay. He's got a nervous tick, but he's Okay. I know a guy that was watching more and more stuff on Netflix and Hulu and HBO because everybody at work was talking about it. He wanted to be able to talk about it. And he realized after like a year of this, he's like, holy cow, his, I'll just be blunt, his intimacy with his wife had changed, not for the better, because of all the stuff that he was seeing and it was changing his viewpoint of things. 
And so now he talks to his small group, and he just says, you know what, uh, I'm thinking of watching that movie. Anybody seen it? You read any reviews on it? He, so he's, he's, he's just putting up a filter. He's thinking about it. I don't know. What would it look like for you to find some ways to push back and say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let the world squeeze me into its mold? Let me leave you with, with this. Hebrews chapter 12 says that, you know, you want to stop living a lie, then you've got to realize you're in a race. Like the race of faith is, is, is real. You're, you're like, when you say yes to Jesus, it's off to the races. And he says there's a big cloud of witnesses kind of cheering you on. But he says it is a race, and it's, it's going to take some perseverance, and it's hard. And he goes on to say that, you know, we, what we've got to do is, therefore, we're crowned, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and sin. We've got to get rid of that and run with perseverance. I see a lot of people saying, I'm going to, I'm going to walk with Jesus, but I'm also going to walk with the world. And he says, no, oh, you can't do that. You've got to decide which race you're running. You can't run with your pants down around your ankles. You've got, you got to get that out of there. You can't run with a 90-pound backpack. There's some stuff you've got to throw off or you will not be able to run the race of faith. I see people saying all the time, you know, they don't say it with their words, but they say it with their life. They say, I, I got my foot firmly in the Jesus camp, but, but it looks like they've got their foot firmly in the world as well. And, and, and the Bible just says you've got to run with perseverance and you've got to throw some stuff off. And then he says, here's the secret. The next secret is in verse 2. It says this, we do this by what? Next verse, verse 2. We do this by keeping our eyes on, keep our eyes on Jesus. You're running that race. He's down there at the end of the, he's, he's waiting. He's already run his race. He's done. Now, he got ridiculed a little bit for his race, but look where he is now. It's like it all worked out. And now he's at the finish line going, come on, come on, come on. You can do it because there are days when you think it's too hard. And he's right there. You keep your eyes fixed on him. You don't look over there. You don't look over there. You don't look at the person behind you. And you don't, you don't look at the person who's trying to pull you back. When the world comes at you, you keep your eyes on Jesus. When your family thinks you're nuts, you keep your eyes on Jesus. When it feels too hard to take another step, you keep your eyes on Jesus. You just fix your eyes there. In my mom and dad's bedroom, they've always had a beautiful picture of Jesus. They, they like the painting by Salmon. Some of you people might even recognize that, that old picture. And when, in Dad's final days when we were able to be there, he was on hospice at home in his own bedroom. We took that painting off the wall and put it right at the foot of his bed for him to look at. So he could just keep his eyes on Jesus. And it was a fitting reminder that the one that he had been watching and moving toward for 93 years was going to see him home and he did he wasn't afraid he just kept following and it's a reminder for all of us when life is hard and there are hurdles and burdens to keep our eyes on Jesus and now dad is looking full in the wonderful face of Jesus not a painting not a reminder but looking at Jesus and the world and all of us have grown strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And, and, and I think it was fitting now that I think about it that we put that painting in front of the TV, which is maybe, if you will, a symbol of the world and all of its messages coming at us. You know, in my dad's deathbed, he, he wasn't asking like, hey, uh, what, what's happening on 60 Minutes? He didn't care who was walking down the red carpet in Hollywood. Not one bit. He set his eyes fixed on Jesus. 
who brought him home. We're going to sing a song now, which is an old song. It's so old, it'll be brand new to most of you. And I'm glad for that, that you'll be able to learn this song. But honestly, you know what it is. It's a moment of, um, it's an invitation to make a decision. Because at the end of the day, we've talked about a lot of stuff. This whole thing with the world and the devil and lies and deception. But at the end of the day, it's just all information unless you make a decision. And you say, I have decided. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to turn back when it gets hard. And when everybody else says, no, 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 go over here. I say, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I invite you to make that decision. Because he's good and he loves you and he will lead you home. Father, we pray for our courage to, to trust you and to follow you and to say, if I'm the only one, I'm going to follow to make a decision this day that will guide us through every day that you are good and that we are with you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have decided to follow Jesus I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Still I will follow, though none go with me, still I will follow, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back, no turning back. Behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. No turning back, no turning